but this much was clear that you know in the growing up and i think this too, this is true for many many people and i see many youngsters around me now who are getting into it you know the way i did which is that there is something wrong there is something unjust something unfair in the world around us uh, and it's like we are not being treated as unfairly as the people around us that we see you know when you see the poverty around you keep thinking that surely the world will move i mean people will move in a way where that poverty will you know keep lessening and then it will disappear and that we'll find that everyone has a decent life around us and we find that that's not what happens so that unfairness stays with you no development you know i have often wondered what that word means is development more roads more bridges more cars more flavors of patanjali noodles <laughs> does development simply mean more i don't think so i don't think we have the faintest idea of what we mean when we say the word development because when we explore the concept slightly further what we find is that there is no thing we can point to and say this is development because development is our understanding of progress the abstract concept of progress individual and collective are we in a better position today than we were yesterday to answer that question to find out if we are in a better position today shouldn't we first explore what is good the way i see it good is being defined by some for the many the state this collective abstraction essentially prioritizes its own agenda as good therefore more of the same agenda must necessarily lead us to better so many of us assume that the world we are born into is the world that makes sense what we all fail to see is that under the guise of giving some of us what is deemed to be good Many of us are expected to be okay living with bad bad air bad water bad land bad company what we all fail to see is that it is fundamentally unjust to say that a dam will be built for cities while it displaces the communities that live right next to it what we all fail to see is that it cannot be justified that big corporations who build factories on the bodies of millions are so quick to turn their backs against those very people what we all fail to see is the sheer absurdity of the system well maybe not all of us certainly not you dear listener because you are listening to what on earth and i am your host maitreya prithviraj kolpade In today's episode I am joined by Usha Ramanathan a human rights activist a lawyer a journalist a editor of a leading development journal who has been tirelessly working for nearly 50 years for the people This episode is about understanding the world of development that we live in by diving into her experience of working for some of the biggest people's movements in the country the Narmada Bachao Andolan and the bhopal gas tragedy in many ways i felt usha ji represents that intrepid activist in us all that kid who finds herself in the midst of the complexity of the collective machinery of the state and sees it for what it really is 
a collection of individuals trying to exert control over things they don't completely understand today's episode attempts to understand development not through conceptual lectures but through the eyes of a foot soldier through the mind of a thought leader through the life of a woman who in her own words had a clueless entry into the world of activism for fighting for people's rights who went on to achieve so much but what she set out to do was simply understand the injustice she saw before her see i i did sociology then i did law and uh, sociology exposed me to you know it was like uh, it was very early years of the field of sociology for us so we didn't even have very many texts and things many of the sociologists that we have now who written some tremendous stuff came later so uh, we had emin srinivas i think he was perhaps the only one we had at that time and then we were still discussing margaret mead and we didn't know that uh, you know there was any other way of looking at we uh, we didn't even see that anthropology represented something a, a way of looking at people so that all that was much later so in the early it was very close to going out to slums going out and doing some adult literacy with you know it was uh, we had adopted a village you know the college had adopted a village and so we had to go there and our job actually was to impart you know uh, things on nutrition and things. i i must confess i had no clue what i was doing but i was participating i was going you know if, and i was in the hostel so i could go every weekend if i wanted there was no problem if we, if i wanted to go out to my local guardians then it was only once a week that i was permitted but if i wanted to go to the village i could go every weekend so you know there were many reasons why you kept getting pushed into this and there was no you know i i didn't know what i was doing but i went seeking this i mean if, if i got an opportunity i didn't miss it so i just went and then on one day it was actually as a kind of it's not even a eureka moment somebody you know in the classroom they were asking what are you going to do after you finish your ba and i just ended up saying law and i said ah so that's what i want to do and then you know i pursued law after that and i think i expected even if not as clearly as this i think i expected that law will be able to find answers to the problems i'm seeing on the ground in a hazy kind of way that's what i thought but then when i got into law i found it had nothing to do with the problems that i had seen on the ground and after some years i found that law was actually contributing to the problems that i was seeing on the ground but that was to come much later so all this getting in you know working on the narmada uh, issue uh, getting involved with bhopal all of this was part of my growing up i mean it was an attempt to grow up so when i first went to delhi vasudha dhagamgur was then she was just beginning you know it was like the uh, she set up later this institution called marg multiple action research group but when i worked with her it was before this actually got set up she came to delhi to set something up and i was working with her for a while on that and she was going to be working uh, in the narmada valley and uh, the the project was to see how do people know you know what happened how do people know about the project in the you know in the valley because the valley is far away from anywhere how do people get to hear about it what are they responding to it what do they think will happen to them uh, you know what kind of future do they envisage what are the fears that they have so you know she was planning to work on that and i was 
her second employee, there was another person from Pune, Aruna Maskar and me, we were the two of us. And so I got sent to the field quite a lot, which was very helpful because it, again, it's a clueless entry, but I'm told, go and look at these registers, you know, collect this data and come back. But then it, it takes you to the field. So the one thing I find that has happened is that, you know, the rural urban continuum somewhere has got broken. People hardly ever go to rural areas. Uh, if they, you know, if we go, in the, and I'm talking about 50 years, I'm not talking about today. It's just broken. So you don't know a village. You've never belonged to one. You don't know how to enter it and who to speak to. That's, in fact, it's even true of slum areas, which fortunately activists have broken down, you know, broken down those walls to quite an extent. But otherwise, if you enter a slum, you won't know which turning to take without, you know, you'll get lost and you'll perhaps come up against a cul-de-sac wherever you go. So in break, you know, breaking those you know, borders which are there in your own mind, or at least not allowing them to develop, was part of that experience of going to the valley, uh, seeing how people live, knowing that you, know, you can have atolls where people cannot, you, know, you can't go on if the current is, uh, you know, it, it is in a certain direction, if it's too powerful, too strong, then you're actually isolated. And that such isolation in various ways exists. I think that was a, you know, that that was a beginning for me to understand that we are not hearing many voices and we don't know many people, and yet, uh, you know, people are making decisions which affect the lives of people that we don't even know and we don't know about. So again, I'm, you know, I'm uh, putting words to those inchoate feelings of that time, but this is the kind of thing that you know slowly grows and. And then, in, so I, which is why I'm saying I never joined a movement. I was exploring throughout. It was never, uh, it was offering, you know, in exchange for learning, I was offering whatever skills I could acquire. It was the worst industrial disaster in India's history. On the night of December the 2nd, 1984, plumes of poisonous gas leaked from an American-run chemical pesticides factory in the town of Bhopal, in central India. Actually, when Bhopal happened in eighty-three, uh, in uh, 1984, I remember reading it in the papers and seeing what, but I don't think the enormity of it, of it really hit me. Uh, it, only, it kind of crawled into me. It didn't really hit me at that moment. I mean, it was a disaster, there was no doubt. But then disasters in this country keep happening all the time. The disaster happened when water accidentally entered a methyl isocyanite storage tank, triggering an uncontrollable chemical reaction and blasting a cloud of toxic gases across nearby slums. Official estimates suggest some 5,000 people died. Campaigners say the real toll, including those who later succumbed to illness, was around 25,000. Doctors at the Sambhavna Clinic, who treat gas-affected people in Bhopal, say higher rates of children are born with abnormalities after the incident. 570,000 people have suffered some sort of health disorder related to the disaster, including cancer and neurological problems. Satinath Sarangi is the managing trustee of the Samhavna Trust in Bhopal. Now, the, out of the 570,000 or so people, the problem is that the government has take, put too many of them 93% of them 
in a category of just temporary injury. But if you look at the figures of the from the hospital records, any year's record, even this year's last year's record, you will find that there are more than 400,000 people who have been visiting the hospitals meant for gas affected people. What that massiveness of that disaster meant and what it, you know, what kind of devastation of people's lives that represented, that slowly it kind of crawled into me over, over time. In 1987, Union Carbide agreed to pay $470 million in compensation via the Indian government. That amount fell far short of original claims for $3 billion. Individuals received 25,000 rupees, the equivalent of about 400 US dollars. And then, of course, because I was also watching things through the judicial process, the when the uh, Supreme Court settled the case, then it kind of, I think, something erupted. I don't think, I, it, it's like, a, you know, maybe there was a dormant volcano somewhere and it just erupted. And after that, the lava has been spilling everywhere. The Bhopal gas tragedy is undoubtedly one of India's and the world's worst environmental disasters. And I urge my listeners to go and learn more about it. For now, let's get back to tracing Kushaji's relationship with activism and understanding development. I think when when I uh, talk about the Bhopal, it's, it's not like I understood about injustice and wrong I ha- that I hadn't understood it till I reached Bhopal. It's that just that, you know, Bhopal was a setting which anyone could see because it was right in the midst of all these people who make policies and who make decisions and things. And yet, you know, what were people seeing? I think that's what made it explode. It's almost like you, you know, it. I think one of the one of the things that was happening in the 80s was we were beginning to recognize how uh, the way we think, the way we act and the kind of programs and project, you know, the kind of things that are done creates victims. There is a process of victim creation. And then once a person becomes that victim, we want to abandon them because they are a drain on us. They are a drag. And it just, you know, it is, it's outrageous. It's like you just have to deal with them. So, and I felt that uh, the, uh, like I said, because I saw some of this through the court and it helped me a lot that the, you know, public interest litigation had come in. So even, even those issues, which I may not have directly got involved in, I knew existed because I could follow it through various kinds of things that were happening in the 80s. And that was, you know, it was a huge learning. So when Bhopal happened, actually, when I, when I, uh, when I say that, I exploded. I hadn't been to Bhopal till then. I hadn't seen the site of the disaster. It's only after the Supreme Court order that I actually went to the site and then saw for myself and met people and, you know, felt, learned to respect what people were doing on the ground. You know, Rashida Appa, Champa Devi, you know, they were, these were people who were, you know, who had been victims of the disaster. They had survived and they'd lost many members of their family. They were living in the uncertainty of what's going to happen to them because it's not just about what is happening from the system around. It's also what's happening within your body because you don't know what that gas is going to do to you inside your body. And they were intrepid. I mean, it was, they were, and they were so clear. 
so that clarity you know so they were good leaders for developing thought in people like me while the bhopal gas tragedy was caused by an industrial accident an improperly managed factory and a vile american corporation another disaster completely driven and supported by the indian government has made millions of citizens into victims who have not received justice for nearly 5 decades in the narmada valley adivasi ko ye hamko adivasi ko ye You see, development's a concept that can be interpreted and defined in different ways, and uh, if it is the change that is desirable, desirable to whom is a question, and what is the framework of values and principles in which you would say it is desirable, and uh, this. is crux of the development paradigm everywhere you find that the communities living on the natural resources are deprived of those because those are acquired or transferred or taken over following the principle of accumulation and development of the certain elite sections of the society more than the others others are thrown the bread crumbs to no doubt but it basically destitutionalizes the communities living on the land water forest even minerals so when we looked at the sardar sarovar project we realized that the social and environmental aspects were totally ignored that was meda patkar leader of the narmada bachao andolan one of india's biggest environmental movements once again i urge my listeners to go read up and learn more about the narmada bachao andolan and the destruction caused by the sardar sarovar dam project for now let's get back to our discussion with usha ji in the valley it was incredible because you know the the narmada valley was a place where i mean the river is amazing and this river is now going to be dammed and there's going to be there are many other things that are going to be done with it but to get all the rest done you had to trap the river and somewhere that is a it's a very difficult thing to just think of as a normal way of functioning it's not normal so that's one thing that really hits you the other thing is that you know people who've been living in the valley have most you know many of them had been there it it isn't even like a place of great migration people had lived in those villages been in those villages as far as they could remember and it you know it occurred to when i went there and i think others too have noticed this that the idea of independence the idea of having leaders you know national leaders these were all things that were not even relevant i mean many of them didn't even know that these things existed so it's like there is a life which they lead which was getting obscured partly because we didn't know 
and partly because we had re- we had set other where we live we had set priorities which seemed to be very different making law enforcing law implementing things programs projects and then you look at how people live and you think people's lives are not projects and programs so there is a disconnect so now these words i'm giving you now but i could sense the disconnect between the world that we thought is the world and the way in which people live where they live and this didn't it wasn't about romanticizing it because many of them were also living in you know it was a it was a, it was subsistence living and sometimes even you know below subsistence so it's not something that you wish on people but it required an you know it required a movement among people to see what you know and an exchange that exchange the meaning of exchange didn't seem to exist it was always we went with things we knew we were the you know uh, people who can who have something to offer whether it's knowledge or it is getting compensation or is getting other we were offering things all the time and I'm, you know it occurred to me that i'm going in ignorance and i have to learn and how will i learn if i go thinking that i'm going to give again words i'm putting to that time but this is exactly how i feel <laughs> As always, if you found this episode interesting and want to know more, want to dive deeper into the philosophy of these issues discussed, check out part 2 of this episode. Thank you for listening.